Today's scripture comes to us from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 to 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. This is the Word of God. Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to NCF. Good to see all of you, especially for those of you who might be visiting us for the first or second time at the invitation of a friend, or if you just happen to find us online on Google, want to say welcome, 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 especially if you're here considering the claims of Christianity. We hope and pray that today's service will be educational and enlightening, but perhaps more importantly, um, experiential of God's presence in your life to where you would come to a saving knowledge of him. Uh, Without further ado, would you bow your heads with me and ask for God's blessing as we hear today's word. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand your word, for as your scriptures say, your word is the light that guides us out of the darkness and into a path of light and hope and righteousness. Father, we have gone through these past six days living in a world that has become darkened and seems to be getting more darker. Father, with such chaos and with such confusion, we need to be reminded that our God is the solid rock in which we stand. So where even though the world seems that it is falling apart and there is no sure footing or foundation anymore, we know that in Jesus we are safe and we are secure. And now, Father, we pray that you would teach and instruct us so that our minds would be renewed, so that we would discern what is good, what is right, what is true, and what is beautiful, so that we can go out into the world representing these things in our lives, thereby pointing to the one who is the hope of the world. For we pray in his holy and precious name, amen and amen. You've heard these two words since the earliest days of your Sunday school years. Pastors throughout your life has spoken these words to you in moments of fear and frustration, as well as in moments of edification and education. You'll find these two words scattered throughout the scriptures in one form or another hundreds of times, and you yourself will have uttered those words, whether in an intimate one-on-one gathering in some cafe in the city somewhere or in a formal group setting, such as a small group or in a gathering, such as a retreat. But let it be known, in whatever ministry context that you have found yourself in, these words will either come out of your mouth or they'll come into your ear, and they are, trust God. Trust God. Two simple words to say, and yet, ironically, two words that are very difficult to live out in your life the older you get. I don't know what God has in store for your life. I don't know what he plans to bring into your life. The loss of a job, the loss of a house, the loss of a loved one. But one thing I do know for sure is that you will, with each passing day, week, month, and year, will need to trust God more and more because of the fact that the longer you live, the more you have to lose. Which probably explains why the person who submitted this topic felt it was worthy to be put in the shoebox series. I mean, after all, this person could have asked any obscure, abstract, difficult questions such as, explain the nature of the Trinity, or how do you solve the riddle of the problem of evil, or who exactly did Cain marry? You know, Something that's almost impossible to answer. But no, they felt that this particular topic was worthy of submission, and I couldn't agree more. How do we, as followers of God, trust God? More importantly, what are the components 
of how we know we are genuinely trusting God? Well, that's the question that we're going to answer today as we take a look at this very well-known passage in Proverbs chapter 3. And as we take a look, we're going to find that the marks of genuine trust in God is made up of three characteristics. Number one, it's a trust of confidence. Number two, it's a trust of activity. And finally, it's a trust in the gospel. Genuine, sincere, authentic trust in God is confident, it's active, and it's centered on the gospel. Okay, so let's jump right in with the first point. It's a trust of confidence. Read again verse 5 with me of our passage where we read, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Now, out of the pantheon of memorable Bible verses, I am sure for no doubt for many of you, this is one of the more memorable ones. I mean, even as I was reading this out loud, I can even imagine some of you guys are thinking of the first moment that you heard these words, and I'm willing to further bet that it was when you were a little kid. In fact, one of the popular songs that our kids are singing right across the hall right now has these very words in it. And yet, If I challenge you to think of a recent memory where these words were actively being lived out in your life, I'm confident you probably can't think of one. Why? Well, just like anything that's forgotten in your short-term memory that's not actively used, these words, tragically, have not been actively applied in your life. And it's not so hard to figure out why. Because the older you get, the more control you have over your life, the more freedom you have over your life. I mean, when was the last time you ever asked permission to stay up late, to eat junk food, or to watch TV on a school night? All things that my children need permission for. You get the point. The older you get, the more sense of control and the more sense of freedom you have. But as you do, a misguided conclusion that can and most often develops in us is such to where passages like this seem highly irrelevant and therefore unnecessary to heed. Trust in the Lord with all my heart. Yeah, maybe if I lived during the days when these words were first written, you know, before the days of science, before the days of enlightenment, before the days of electricity, before Google. But trust in the Lord with all my heart? Mm, I don't think so. I'm good. Maybe I'll trust the Lord with maybe an eighth of my heart or a tenth of my heart. Now, I know you hear me and you think I'm sounding silly, right? The way that I'm trying to portray your attitude about this as if this is the attitude you really have, but I'm being dead serious. This is, whether or not you want to admit it or not, is the mindset, is the attitude that you do have when it comes to trusting God. And I can prove it to you by simply asking this question. When was the last time you prayed, Christian? And I don't mean that, you know, routinized little prayer that you do with your kids right before you eat or right before you fall asleep or while you're falling asleep and waking up the next morning saying amen. I'm talking about heartfelt, sincere, on your knees, desperate prayer. Because what we come to find is that that kind of prayer is a barometer that indicates how much you truly trust the Lord. The more you pray like that, the more you trust God. The less you pray like that, the more you trust God in yourself. Consider these words from theologian Sam Storms when he writes this, quote, the world around us is telling us that prayer is an empty ritual. Those, quote, in the know are saying prayer is a relic of the dark ages, a time when belief in the supernatural went unchallenged. Enlightened and educated people ought to know better, they tell us. Prayer is simply a superstitious way of coping with crisis we are otherwise too weak to handle. Our children pray and we think it is cute. But any serious appeal to a transcendent deity whom we believe can and will play a significant role in the events of human existence is 
is at best outdated, at worst, ridiculous, end quote. See, our lack of prayer is a reflection of our lack of trust in God. And our lack of trust in God is stemming from an unfounded trust in ourselves that comes from an unwarranted sense of freedom control that we think we have, but in fact, we do not possess. Consider again the second half of verse 5. What does it say? Do not lean on your own understanding. For those of you with a pen or highlighter, you might want to underline that word lean. Why? Because whether you realize it or not, that word changes verse 5 from what initially appears to be a very simplistic, childish verse to a profoundly deep and profoundly eye-opening verse. Let me explain. You know, when you lean on something, such as when you lean up your body up against the wall, that very act of leaning is you showing dependence on that wall to support you. In other words, you are trusting that wall to give you control that you don't have at that very moment, which is you don't have the control to carry your weight. So you need to lean on something to help you control that weight that you currently cannot. And if you read verse 5 carefully, you realize that this leaning or trusting, whether it's on God or your own understanding, is still something you have to do. No matter if it's trusting God or trusting in your own understanding, you're still depending on something outside of yourself in order for you to do what you need to do. Consider these words from theologian Herman Bovink. Listen to what he says, quote, Every man, even the most learned, is limited in his gifts and energies in time and place. What he can investigate freely and independently for himself makes up only a tiny part of the boundless domain of science. He owes by far the largest part of his knowledge to the investigation of others, and he accepts their testimony on trust as being true. Even more significantly, besides the natural sciences, which are built on observation, There is the science of history, which has no choice but to build on testimonies regarding the past. Although they remain subject to criticism, these testimonies always require a large degree of trust on the historian's part. There is no science without personal trust and faith in the testimony of others. End quote. What is he saying? He's saying, Even if you're a devout Christian or radical atheist, you still need to lean. You still need to depend on something outside of yourself in order to function in life. Regardless of what that radical atheist says, who says, I only trust in myself. I only trust in my five senses. That is absolutely untrue. No one is able to get away from needing to lean on something or someone outside of ourselves. And this is something we need to grasp. Because there is such a misconception out there that says, because we can comprehend things that our primitive ancestors couldn't, therefore that means we don't need to lean on anyone, we don't need to trust on anything or anyone, we just need to trust in ourselves. But clearly, that is utterly untrue. It is so untrue. Even the most rational atheist has to live by faith in something. Something that he cannot touch, something he cannot verify, something that he must lean on in order for him to have understanding. You see, his understanding has to lean on something other than himself. And when you understand this, suddenly this idea of trusting God doesn't appear as childish as we thought. This idea of putting your faith in God doesn't seem as naive or idiotic. In fact, just the opposite. Now, all of a sudden, it makes complete sense. Where trusting God is just as reasonable as the scientist trusting in his theories. In fact, 
I would dare say that it's much more confident and more trusted because that's what genuine trust in God is. It isn't a hopeful trust where you're just doing it out of sheer desperation because you have no other option and choice but to do it. It is something that you do firsthand because as a follower of God, you have more confidence in God than any other thing or any other person in this created world that you could put your faith in. And so practically what this means, Christian, is that when you find yourself in a situation where you have no control or where you're losing control, the first thing you should not do is go to Google, read a book, or talk to the experts. I would dare say that the first thing you should do is go to your God. Go to your God, whether it be in the form of prayer, whether it be in the form of meditating and studying the scriptures or talking to people who do both of those things. Because one of the things that marks sincere, genuine trust is a trust of confidence that the God that you put your faith in is truly a God worthy of trust, that he is just as worthy as the trust and the faith that you put in your science, in your hypothesis, in your theories, in the people that you look around to save you in moments of trouble. So that's the first indicator of genuine trust. It's a trust that is confident. It's a trust that's not a shame. It's a trust that is first and foremost directed at God. Now let's move on. The second characteristic of trust of God, and this leads me to my second point, it's a trust of activity. Read with me verse 6 again, where it says, In all your ways acknowledge him. And he will make straight your paths. Again, if you're a note taker, underline that phrase in all your ways because it serves as a preventative from falling into a common misconception that many of us have when it comes to trusting in the Lord. You see that phrase in the original Hebrew, in all your ways, really comes from one Hebrew word, derek. Spelled like derek in English, I guess. But it's pronounced derek. And it literally means path or road. Now let me ask you, what do you do on a path or road? You move on it, right? Whether it's driving on the road, whether it's walking the path, running the path. The point is, you're active. You're moving. If you see a person on the road just standing there, sitting there, doing nothing, completely passive, you know that's not normal. And usually you should probably not stop and see what's going on. You should probably just keep going. It's not normal for someone just to be inactive, to be passive on a road or a path that's designed for activity, for movement. Right? And that same concept applies when it comes to trusting God. You see, there are some misguided Christians out there who genuinely believe that trusting God is to be a passive thing. And of course, in some ways, it's kind of understandable because what are the common phrases that we use at church to convey that we're to trust God? Hey, you need to wait on the Lord. You need to wait on God here, okay? Just trust in God and wait on Him. And I know that can be taken too literally, but of course, I hope you would know by now that taking things too literally in the Bible can actually be bad for you. I mean, case in point, Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. You're going to take it literally? I hope not, okay? Or when he says, gouge out your right eye, don't take it literal, folks, okay? And that same idea applies to this. When you take this concept of waiting on God, trusting in God too literally, you could end up in a direction that you don't want to end up going. Case in point, when I was in seminary, I had a, a, a brother. I wasn't really friends with him, but we were in school together, same year. Very smart, very responsible, very godly, right? But also very single. And I could not tell you, every time I see him, the conversation always veered towards, man, I'm so lonely. Man, I'm so 
lonely. I wish God would just give me a wife and give me a kid. And it got to the point where our circle of friends would see him like, okay, he's, he's coming. We've got to go in the other direction. Like, hey, guys, how you been? Oh, man, I'm so lonely. And it got so nauseating to the point where we're like, dude, do something about it. Don't just sit there. You know, hey, there's a girl in our Greek class. Ask her out on a date. Take her out to dinner. Movie. Just do something. You know what this brother would say to us? Nah, I'm trusting in God. Trusting God. Right? And so I'm just going to keep serving faithfully at, at the church, you know, that I'm serving at. And I'm just going to trust God. You know what this brother's doing now, last I heard? Still living at home, still doing part-time youth ministry, and he just celebrated his 40th birthday. <clears throat> Trusting God is not a passive trust to where you just sit there twiddling your thumbs, expecting God to do everything for you. No, trusting God is an act of trust where you're intentional, where you're proactive, where you're moving in some direction to some specific goal. Consider these words from Pastor Kevin DeYoung when he writes, quote, trusting in God's will of decree is good. Following his will of desire is obedient. Waiting for God's will of direction is a mess. It is bad for your life, harmful to your sanctification, and allows too many Christians to be passive who strangely feel more spiritual the less they actually do. God is not a magic eight ball we shake up and peer into whenever we have a decision to make. He is a good God who gives us brains, shows us the way of obedience, and invites us to take the risks for him. We know God has a plan for our lives. That's wonderful. The problem is we think he's going to tell us the wonderful plan before it unfolds. We feel like we can know and need to know what God wants every step of the way. But such preoccupation with finding God's will as well intention as that desire may be is more folly than freedom. The better way is the biblical way. Seek first the kingdom of God, then trust that he will take care of our needs even before we know what they are and where we're going. Christian, you need to understand this. God did not create you to be inactive or passive with your life. He created the world and the people in it so that you would participate, so that you would interact. In fact, it's through that participation and interaction that you find the need to trust God to arise in the first place. So going back to that brother who's single, right? He thought that trusting that God would give him a wife meant that he had to basically not interact with any women and to not actively date any woman. How is that trust? Because the very nature of genuine trust assumes vulnerability. You know, if I'm driving over the GW bridge, I'm trusting that bridge is safe to drive on. But if I'm in my living room couch, I'm not trusting the GW bridge is safe to drive on. I may believe, right, the bridge is safe to drive on, but I'm not trusting that it's safe to drive on because real trust requires real-time vulnerability at the moment. Hear me when I say this. Trust and belief are two very different things. I'll show you an illustration. Have you heard the story of Charles Blondin? Charles Blondin was a man who lived in the late 1800s, was a famous tightrope walker. And there's a story going around that one time he went up to Niagara Falls and he put a tightrope like high wire over the rushing, surging waters. And obviously when a person is doing something that crazy, a crowd is naturally going to form. And so as he saw this crowd gathering around him, he yelled out to them, hey, who of you here think that I can walk across this tightrope back and forth without falling? Almost in one voice in unison, the crowd roared, we believe. And sure enough, he did. And then afterwards, he yelled to the crowd, hey, who here believes that I can do what I just did, but also push a wheelbarrow across it? Almost without hesitation, they roared in unison, we believe, we believe. And sure enough, he did. 
He did, and he came back, and then he said again, who of you guys in here believe I can do what I just did, but have a person sitting on my shoulders? And again, with even greater volume, we believe, we believe, we believe. And then he followed up, okay, who's going to volunteer to go first? Utter silence. Why? Because there is a true difference between belief and trust. Trust is not passively believing something is true. Trust is actively depending on something or someone in a state of vulnerability. Again, trust is not passively believing something is true. Trust is actively depending on something or someone in a state of vulnerability. And this is so crucial that you understand this. Why? Read again, verse 6. In all your ways, acknowledge him. How many of our ways are we to acknowledge God? How many of our ways are we to trust He says all. Now, I find that so interesting, right? Because by putting it this way, what is the writer of Proverbs assuming there is a tendency for us to do? Isn't he kind of implying tacitly that instead of trusting God with all our ways, we just trust God with some of our ways? Notice he's writing to believers. He's writing to people who, by their belief, claim to trust God. And yet, by virtue of the fact that he has to command this, tells us that it's possible as a believer of God to want to trust God, to think you're trusting God, to believe you're trusting God, when in fact there's a part of your life, maybe a huge part of your life, that you're not trusting God with at all. And so here's the question. How can you figure out which part of your life, which way that you spend your time on, that you are truly not trusting God with at all? The answer is quite simple. It's the areas of your life where you feel no vulnerability. Where you feel no vulnerability whatsoever. Think about some of the categories of life, some of the various ways you spend your time on. There's your, there's your school life, your work life, your love life, your family life, your community life, your political life, your recreational life. Right? All these various ways that you live life. And some of these things are things that you feel very vulnerable in that you don't have much control over. But then there are other areas of life that I just mentioned that you think, yeah, I'm all good. I'm in full control, right? And I'm totally fine as I am. Hold on to that thought as you read what the Apostle James tells us, starting in verse 13 of chapter 4 of his book. He says, quote, Look here, you who say, today or tomorrow, we are going to a certain town and we'll stay there a year. We will do business there and make a profit How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while, then it's gone. Well, you ought to say, if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. Otherwise, you are boasting about your own pretentious plans, and all such boasting is evil. It's evil. What's he saying? He's saying there's never a moment in your life. There's never a category of life where you are not constantly in need and dependence. Which is another way of saying there is never a chapter, a category, a moment, a season of life where you are not absolutely vulnerable. You see, this idea of being in control and freedom and having invulnerability is an illusion. And as long as we maintain this, our hearts will never go all into this idea of trusting God. And the thing that you have to get over is this false conception of control, is this false conception of freedom, is this false conception of invulnerability. Because that is what blocks your ability to trust God with all your heart in all of your ways. And so here's the crucial question for today. How do you overcome this 
deceptive mindset that says you are invulnerable so that you can go all in in your trusting God the way you need to be. And this leads us to the final point. It's a trust of the gospel. Read with me verse 7. It says, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Here we're told to quote, uh, Be not wise in our own eyes. Now, what in the world does that mean? What does it mean to be not wise in our own eyes? Well, we know what wisdom is, right? Wisdom is knowledge. And we all hear all the time, knowledge is power. So that means a person who thinks that they're wise in their own eyes thinks they have power, power to be protected from any vulnerabilities that's out there in the world. So the longer you think you're wise in your own eyes, you know what that's saying? You're saying, I'm invulnerable. I have no weaknesses. I'm in full control and have no vulnerabilities whatsoever. And because this is the mindset that we tend to have, the proverb goes on to say this, turn away from evil. See, that statement right there helps us to get out of this self-decept mindset that we are invulnerable. How? Two ways. The first way <clears throat> is by helping us understand that fundamentally we are evil. That's what that phrase, turn away from evil, implies. It implies that you have a natural bent to go towards evil. And I'm telling you now, there is nothing Nothing that will spoil and shatter your sense of invulnerability than the awareness that you are an evil person. You know why? Because you know what we do with evil? You know what the natural instinct is in society, in cities, in people, individual one-on-one? If someone is being evil to you, you know what your natural instinct is, which is right and good, is to destroy it, right? When you understand that you are by at your disposition an evil person, No amount of invulnerability that you think you have in whatever category of life is going to make you be able to forget, to minimize, to ignore, or to be settled with that idea. Because it will constantly haunt you. It will constantly cause you to obsess and to ruminate and to not be able to deal with the kind of angst and with the kind of anxiety that kind of awareness brings to your life. No amount of wisdom. No amount of sense of control, no amount of sense of freedom could help you escape from the haunting, chronic, obsessive sense that you need to be destroyed. And that's why the most proper and the normal reaction you should have when you come to that awareness is the one that's recorded for us in Romans chapter 7, where the Apostle Paul says this, starting in verse 18, I know that nothing good lives in me, that is my sinful nature. I want to do what's right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. Oh, what a miserable man that I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Notice what Paul says when he recognizes he's evil. He says, I got to stop looking to myself. I cannot depend on me. I cannot trust me because even with my own evilness, I want to hurt myself. And now, for the first time maybe, he starts looking outside of himself for someone whom to depend on, someone to lean on, someone to trust in. And when he's in that mindset, it segues to the second reason why it says turn away from evil. Let me ask a question. Why do you think people don't trust God? And when I say people, I don't mean atheists. I mean Christians like you in this room. Why do Christians not trust God? Simple. They don't think he's trustworthy, right? Duh. You know what another word for trustworthy is? Good. 
Look it up in the dictionary. A synonym for trustworthy, good. If you don't think God is trustworthy, that's basically saying you don't believe God is good. And if God isn't good, what else is left for him to be? Evil, right? When this statement is there in Proverbs 3, turn away from evil, it's trying to help us have a proper perspective. Instead of seeing God as evil that would justify you to think that you can't trust him, it's saying, wake up. It's not God that is evil. It's you. And because you're the one that's evil, by logical inference, that means God is what? He's good. He's trustworthy. And when you come to that awareness and realization, now you're in position to trust God in a way that will make you able to trust him in all of your ways. What am I talking about? Trusting him with the gospel. The gospel. What is the gospel? Well, I can think of no better way to explain it than the way scripture refers to it itself. This is Paul's definition, Romans 5, starting in verse 6, we read, When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who was especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. What is the gospel? It's the good news that says, even though you are evil to where God had every right to reject you, to cut off all ties with you to where you could not depend on him, he did just the opposite. He sent his son, who is also God, into the world as a human being, Jesus Christ, so that he could take on the full payment and the full punishment for all of your sins, even the ones that you haven't committed yet, folks, on the cross as your substitute savior so that if you put your faith in him renouncing of your evil ways and make him the king of your life not only do you have forgiveness of sins not only do you have eternal life but you now have a basis to trust god not with just some part of your life but with every part of your life listen if god is willing to come through for you on the most important the most vulnerable area of your life, do you not think that he would also not come through for you in the things that are subpar in comparison to that? Don't you think that if God is willing to go above and beyond than what he needs to in order to establish his trustworthiness for your salvation, don't you think he would also be trustworthy when it comes to things that are less than your salvation, that don't cost him as much in order to save you as he did for your sins. If he is trustworthy in that, do you not think he could be trustworthy in that little thing in comparison to that wonderful salvation? This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who could ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? You know, sometimes my daughter, Kara, you know, in moments of insecureness, that's typical of her age. Mommy, do you really love me? Do you really care for me? You know, and of course, if I was her, I'd be like, of course. And I would point to things like I make you breakfast, you know, and, you know, I, I, I 
buy you clothes. You know what Sarah sometimes says? She says, Kara, do you know I almost died giving birth to you? <laughs> do you know how many hours it took? Do you know how painful it was to give you life? Right? If I'm willing to do that, if I'm willing to deliver you and all the nasty stuff that comes with it, I'm not going to do it because I love my wife too much. Right? Don't you think I love you? She's like, yes, mom. When it comes to the things in your life that you find so hard to trust God with, and you think, are you really that good? Are you really going to come through for me? You know, can you think of the moment that Jesus had to endure to give you life? The moment of the cross. Now, I'm not saying that the thing that you're trusting God with, that that automatically means he's going to come through the way you exactly want it. Because who are we to say that we know what's best for us? But don't you think that God, who does know best for us and who does know what we need more than we do, by evidence of the cross, can that not give you the assurance that you need to go all in and to be in all your ways acknowledging God as the trustworthy God that he is? And I know there are things in your life right now that seem so unsettled. There's a lot of question marks roaming around certain ways of life that you are currently in. But the thing that I am asking you to consider as much as I'm asking myself is how often do you reflect on the gospel? Because the gospel, folks, is not just something you think about so that you answer the question, am I going to go to hell after I die or am I going to go to heaven? The gospel is so much more than that. The gospel is the foundation and the very air that we breathe so that we can live out our lives as people who are trusting our lives into the care of our God. Because what is the alternative? Trusting in ourselves? That's evil? Trusting in other people who are evil as well? Trusting in a world that's falling apart? Or trusting in the one who fell apart for us so that we could have eternal hope that he is trustworthy if we would just go all in with him? That's the challenge that I have for all of you, that I have for me. And it begins with this question. Do you have trust in the gospel? That's where it begins and that's where it ends. I want to end my message with a couple of next steps. First, if you're here today investigating the Christian faith, and today's message really resonated and was a tipping point for you to say, I'm ready to go all in with Jesus. Take this time right now to lift up a prayer to God and say, Lord, you've been knocking on my heart. I'm ready to open. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. Come talk to me. Come talk to Pastor James. We will get you straight and ready to journey on this wonderful path that you're about to start today. Number two, consider what areas of life Are you currently being challenged to trust God in your finances, your health, your job, a loved one in the hospital? Maybe take some time to pray for the Holy Spirit to give you faith to grow in your confidence by helping you grow in your meditation of the gospel. And finally, one practical exercise, meditate and pray over Romans chapter eight, verses 31 to 32. This is something I'm always encouraging you guys to do. Write scripture, memorize scripture, meditate scripture. By now, I've given you at least 30 different cards to write out in these next steps. Go through them over and over, but specifically hold on to this and write trust God on the back of it. So you can immediately go back to it the moment you find your trust in him wavering. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand more and more of this wonderful and yet difficult thing known as trusting our great God. For you are a God worthy of trust. 
And yet it is so hard for us to instinctively and naturally go in that direction because, as it says in your word, we always turn towards evil, not away from it. And so, Jesus, we need you to intervene because we cannot depend on ourselves. We cannot depend on anything or anyone in this fallen world. We only depend on you, the one who is above this world and who is above all sin and brokenness. Jesus, we need you to come and to show us of your great mercy and love Would you help us to believe this more and more? Because God, our life is not getting any better and our need to trust in something is not going away. It's either going to be you, Lord, or something or someone else. And we know, God, just by the way that this world has been lately, that there is nothing and no one as trustworthy as you. And so, Father, as we are cornered in the way that we are, let it be a mercy for us so that it would compel us to go in the direction of trust in you that is confident, that is active, and that's centered on the gospel. We pray that we would remember these things more and more and live it out. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.